thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Piles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription, 12 books handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one wherever they are in the world. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. There are few artists whose work is so well known and yet who remain so mysterious as Albrecht Dürer. Mysterious because he lived at that fluid time in the 15th century where history and legend often blend into one. Mysterious because his works feel so replete with meaning and yet prove so hard to interpret. And mysterious because his skills were so advanced, his genius so profound, that his techniques are hard to replicate even more than five centuries later. All of which is why I can't think of any contemporary writer I'd rather read on Jura than Philip Hoare, whose previous works like Leviathan and Rising Tide Falling Star straddle the often artificially enforced division between history and myth, between our personal mythologies and the so-called real world. Philip's Albert and the Whale is no mere life of them. Rather, it's a psychobiographical dive into the mind of Jura an investigation of the universe he spirited forth in his work and how its influence has rippled through the centuries, stirring the lives of artists and writers, how waves move across the surface of the sea and the currents churn its depths. And of course, because this is Philip Hoare, there's a Cetitian involved, several in fact, but we'll come to them in our discussion, I'm sure. Philip, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. It's great to be back here with you. Speaking to you from Dublin, in fact. Yes. Well, there are worse places to be speaking to us from. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I'd like to begin um, with your um, your encounter with Jura, which is how the book begins, or at least um, because I said in the introduction, we're all kind of familiar with a lot of the works of mm. Albrecht Jura, even if we don't realize mm. uh, that specific works are by him. So maybe it's better to say your, your re-encounter with him or your first profound encounter with him. Mm. Um, and in at the beginning of Albert and the Whale, you you juxtapose these two events. So one is uh, coming into contact with the engravings uh, in a gallery, and the other is visiting a laboratory, a um, a scientific study center where uh, a friend of yours is um, is working with monkeys. Um, and I'm just curious to know what it is about these two events that sort of gave the spark to your renewed interest in Jura? Well, they happen both in the same city, which I don't name the book, but it's Boston, mm -hmm. um, New England. And, and it was uh, it happened when I was sort of at the, at the depths or the height of my whale headedness, my <laughs> obsession with whales, which really blossomed there because I became in physical contact with with whales in, in the wild for the first time. And um, and, and, that, and that's when I was working towards the, the book that became Leviathan mm -hmm. um, and especially interested in Herman Melville. And I'd read Moby Dick for the first time. Uh, so my head was very much full of that. And it was a very snowy day and I was February and I was wandering around Boston sort of slightly disconsolate. Um, I was on a book tour for my previous book and um, I um, 
uh, I, I wandered into the Museum of Fine Arts in, uh, in, in Boston and there was an exhibition of Dürer's woodcuts and engravings mm. there. Uh, uh, and it was astonishing because it was a big white space, a modern white space. And, um, uh, and there was these images on the, on the walls which looked as though they'd been run off the office photocopier. I mean, they were mm -hmm. so modern, so new, um, these, these um, black and white images, but they contained color in a way. You, you know, it's extraordinary really that someone like Jura, I mean, Erasmus said of Jura, he, he does in black and white what other artists can only do in color. Mm. Um, and there was these images and what, what really struck me about these images, which, as you say, um, we're kind of all really familiar with, partly because they have entered the verbal uh, vocabulary of, of our culture, especially our Western culture, uh, and traveled around the world. Um, and that has a lot to do with Jura's um, use of printing, mm. but also his very graphic sensibility. And um, but what I really noticed about these images, there were animals in them all mm -hmm. and the animals weren't incidental. They were um, individual, they had personhood, mm. they had a sense of actuality and reality. They weren't allegorical, as you are <laughs> used to seeing in, in medieval images, animals as allegories. Mm. These were real animals, they were observed animals. And I knew also this story that Joe tried to see a whale. Mm -hmm. um, and so all those things could have tied together. Also with the fact that I now retrospectively realised I was picking up on a number of references that Melville makes to Jura um, in his writing, in Moby Dick and in, in, in other places. Uh, he, he calls him that fine Dutch savage. <laughs> of course, he wasn't Dutch. Um, but <laughs> but um, actually, Melville is being mischievous. And Melville, who is himself half Dutch anyway, is being mischievous, as he, as he always is. And um, so all those things combined to set me off at a kind of rather a habian search for for Jura's whale um, mm. yeah so this i mean this is backwards so before you were writing leviathan so we're talking a good what sort of 15 years ago something like yes that? yes it is it is it is yes so and, and so it's sort of it's laying there dormant you know mm. Jura's whale waiting to be sort of stirred into action slouching towards not bethlehem <laughs> but Southampton, where I live, and um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, and also because you know, increasingly since I wrote Leviathan, I I found it very difficult to keep whales out of my work. I every time I start a new book, I think, right, this is not going to be about whales. There's not going to be whales. <laughs> no whales. No, no, no. And then they just because it's like Melville says, you know, these hooded, grand hooded, hooded phantoms moving through your head. You know, they they do haunt you. You know. Mm. Um, Partly because of what they represent. Do you think it 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 took so so long, in a sense, for you to to tackle Jura as a as a as a subject of your writing? Because in in many senses, as I said in the introduction, he's so hard to to pin down. That's the glory of him. He is not. You do not. You can't find a category to put Jura in. Mm -hmm. He is. I mean, it's a cliche, but he is a Renaissance man, and his interests are scientific, astrological, astronomical, um, natural history, uh, artistic, of course, philosophical, um, and those all emerge very, very graphically in in his work, um, which is. It just doesn't look medieval. It looks mm -hmm. modern. You know, he was born in 1471, died in 1528. So he straddles this 
breakpoint, these tectonic plates mm. of the meeting of medieval and modern. And he, he's like a Janus god looking with one face to the one past and with the other face to the, the future, you know. And he dreamt about the future. He dreamt mm. about a golden age when art would be this extraordinary thing and artists would have a new... Uh, relevance within society um, and of course he was coming you know he's coming from a medieval time when the artist was the artisan that they weren't they weren't anyone special they weren't anyone deserving of particular interest in their own right you know they were recorders you know they were manufacturers of images they weren't they weren't um uh psychological uh um, beings that, that, that sort of impress themselves on their art. You didn't expect to see or hear about an artist really very much at all. Mm -hmm. And so getting to know Dura, what you had were, was obviously his his work, which um, has been preserved. And because he was, uh, it was, he was a, a printer, his work, I assume, is sort of more accessible perhaps in a, in a, uh, in a physical sense than perhaps certain of the uh, other great masters. Um, and then you also had his um, his diaries, although uh, interestingly, uh, there seems to be something almost contradictory about the the work, which is so sort of mysterious and the diaries, which seem so matter of fact. They're very quotidian. They're very pedantic, um, uh, uh, almost anally retentive, one might say in modern terms. I mean, he's continually noting down how much it cost him to like pass through, you know, uh, uh, some uh, 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 border where he had to pay off, you know, his dues and then how much he pays for the wine, how much he pays for dinner, how much he pays for his socks. Mm. Um, <laughs> he's really, you know, and um, I know Roger Fry, the, you know, the great Bloomsbury critic and artist got really really lost his temper when he was editing the diaries. And he said, well, what's a great artist doing going on about this? And what's he doing collecting all of this rubbish for, you know, sharks fins and monkeys and shells and all this, but, you know, and this juror was shipping this stuff back to Nuremberg wholesale, you know, mm. he was like Andy Warhol, you know, he's so like Warhol in many, many ways, mm. you know, not least he's a central European. I mean, his father was a Hungarian emigre. I mean, there are quite a lot of you know, uh, correspondences with Warhol. And Jura's collecting is this expression of his naivety, of his childlike wonder in things, you know. And that's what you see in those pictures. Those pictures, I realised one of the reasons why I really like those pictures, they reminded me of the illustrations to Narnia mm. um, or Tolkien. You know, they're quite fantastical and they have depth and a sense of drawing one in mm -hmm. into this this other world you know and he just he just which is something which is so it's a sense of fantasy tied up with his sort of slightly archetypal german technical ability and love of you know the 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 the, the, the sharpness and the acuteness of things mm -hmm. and the the demarcation of things, you know, even his paintings are very demarcated. They're almost like when you go close to one of his paintings, it's almost like there's little black lines around them. You know, like mm. when you're a child, you, everything had a black line around them. You yes. have to be really persuaded not to draw black lines <laughs> around everything. But no one ever persuaded not to draw black lines around <laughs> anything. And that's why they look so, they almost like they're animated, they're like animated cells, mm -hmm. his paintings, both his color work and also his, his engravings and drawings and, yeah. um, yeah, I'd like I'd like to pick up on that idea of his um, his collecting things. It seemed to uh, 
to uh, to irritate Fry so much, um, because that seemed to be something that was, in a sense, essential to his work. Because Jura was creating these these incredibly living animals on the page, and yet he wasn't always, or in fact, probably quite rarely, drawing from life. Well, most specifically and most fantastically, in in all senses of the word, the the rhinoceros, which mm -hmm. he drew in 1515 entirely from second-hand reports sent to him from Lisbon of this Indian rhinoceros that had ended up in uh, as a gift from, from a, a Maharaja in, Italy, in, in India and sent to Manuel I of, of Portugal. Um, and there were German economic agents, I also read almost espionage agents in a way, <laughs> sending back these reports and they knew that Jura would just love it. It's almost they're like it's clickbait for Jura, really. You know, he's like, well, no, look at this. <laughs> and um, and so Jura creates this just beautiful image of this clanking armored, armadillian cetacean. I mean, he even adds an extra tusk to the whale to the rhinoceros's back, which is the horn of a narwhal of a mm -hmm. In an Arctic whale, which was supposed to be the original horn of the unicorn, so he melds the the mythic and the um, uh, bestial bestiaries of the medieval period with the scientific rigor and ardor of of his his own time, and so and he pushes that all into this image, which is squashed into the framing of that woodcut. It's just amazing mm. when you see the woodcut because the rhino goes, its horn goes right up to one end, and is rear goes to the back and it's which is <laughs> bursting out of this image and it, that's kind of Jura all around he's like, sort of bursting to show you this stuff and mm. I've never seen it but this is what it must look like <laughs> and um and of course the uh, the irony is it was so graphic that it remained the way we saw rhinoceroses until David Attenborough arrived basically yeah yeah um, yeah and that, that's something it's that, that sort of glorious paradox in a way um I mean you use the term at the moment during the book that his uh, his rhinoceros was more rhinoceros than the rhinoceros. Mm. Um, and in a funny kind of way, I, I, could, I could understand in a way how a kind of, if he was confronted with the, the real animal, uh, he might have, I don't know, when you're confronted with something as a whole, in some way it's more difficult to understand than when you're confronted mm. with sort of several different perspectives that are kind of a, a piecemeal appreciation of the of the thing. Yeah, and I think he was, um, you know, again, he's so much acting on his childhood memories. I mean, his father, who was a, an engraver, um, a graver, a goldsmith in Nuremberg, who had these um, uh, books which use reference um, as probably had a copy of Albertus Magnus's um, Historia Animalium, um, mm -hmm. which was one of the first modern, relatively accurate sort of animal encyclopedias, if you will. So mm -hmm. that had all these images of and Magnus had been, uh, Albertus Magnus had gone, around, he'd been in the Baltic, he'd seen whales and he'd seen, seen whaling. So he was able to actually talk about whales in a realistic way rather than these spouting horned giants you know, from the edge of the flat world. Mm. And uh, so Jura had that sort of, again, that sort of child, you know, you know, the, you know, the importance of encyclopedias when you're a child. When mm. I, I suppose it's just, I suppose it's just YouTube now, but you know, when you <laughs> and I were a child, we would look at, we would pour over encyclopedias, I think, you True. know, and, uh, and the, 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 the kind of imagination uh, that an encyclopedia, you know, that sense of, 
it's collecting you know the, the world in your head and because by collecting you create a cast of images of animals of people of ideas that mm -hmm. becomes your that is your imagination isn't it that, that, that that's just what it is yeah 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 it's interesting um, that you say that um uh albertus magnus saw a whale um because one thing i suppose that's very specific about marine life in a way is that unless you see it in the its living context it's very hard to get a sense of what it is how it moves how it lives i mean i i think funny you mentioned david attenborough because i remember from his um series blue planet uh there was a an episode about the deep seas and one of the things that really impressed me about that was the idea that some of these creatures because their bodies are designed to live at incredibly high pressure as soon as they come to the surface they essentially collapse and we don't really have any sense of how they look or how they live unless we see them in context and whales i guess in many ways yeah. are the same like unless you see them as in the sea where they're these incredibly graceful incredibly powerful beautiful uh, creatures you're not going to get a sense of of the animal in the same way Imagine if Dura had an aqualung, you know, I mean, just it's extraordinary what he might have done. Of course, the thing is that we're left with his elaboration, his embroidery upon the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think that for me, it's the fact that the, the things that he didn't draw and that he didn't see and the fact that when he tries to bridge that gap of ignorance by his, his imagination or when it's bridged actually by an, a, a, a physical um, effect on him himself like the, trying to see a whale in Zeeland this stranded whale that he tried to see actually caused his death mm. um, he caught an infection there um, which he blamed on the marshy swamps of Zeeland where he tried to see this stranded whale uh, which was said to be a, a kilometer long and was poisoning the village with, with its miasma. Um, um, and of course, he, he, he'd known from his reading of, of Albertus that it's, it's nonsense, you know, a whale mm -hmm. is a, he, he knew, I think he must have known a whale was a mammal. Um, and he wanted to go and record that. Um, but it's almost as though this is the ultimate hubristic act, you know, by, by playing God. You know, the trouble is the artist is playing God. They're, they're doing something which is only really God's work, is to record mm -hmm. the real original world, to recreate it. That's really not uh, within the, the compass of, of, of humanity. They, mm -hmm. they, you shouldn't really mess with that, you know. It's like Martin Luther said, you know, the invention of printing, of releasing these images as well as the texts, but images as well, is going to destabilize the world. It's going to mm -hmm. drive the world mad. Um, and it's not a godly thing. Yeah, often stranded whales were re regarded as ungodly things, or of course, um, uh, emblems of God's displeasure with us. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, a, a dysfunction in the natural world. And of course, Dürer, who believed his whole life to be, uh, as much as he believed in science, he also believed in astrology and he believed his life was determined by the stars. He believed mm. he was laboring under the planet or what he would call the star of Saturn. And under, under melancholy, and of course, that's where his most famous, most cryptic, most strange image, the 
Melancholia One, the, mm. the, the ungendered angel surrounded by these strange implements in a, a moon lit sea behind him uh, or her. And so it was that sense of the artist's inability to do things mm -hmm. is as interesting as, as their ability to do things. And I think that's what, you know, that correlates with the fact that Durant didn't see the whale. He wasn't able to mm. record the whale makes him more interesting. And, mm. and actually, I, I wish Roger Fry would actually take notice of that because <laughs> he's so bloody up himself, Fry, Fry, with his psychoanalytical Freudian head on him. He's not looking at this person who's transcending this stuff. And in fact, mm. looking to the future, this golden age. And that's what Jura at the end of his life says, the only thing it's worth an artist doing is recording the natural world. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's worth doing. Yeah. One um one other person who who we'll talk about again a bit later I think um who who wrote a biography of Dura so Panofsky uh, at a moment you quote him as saying that um, Dura defied the objective laws of nature and crucially abolished the distinction between hallucination and reality um, and I think there's something very interesting going on there and you mentioned Fry as his kind of with his kind of Freudian analysis one other psychoanalyst or analytical psychologist who you come to several times during the book is of course Carl Jung and uh, I mean I found it interesting because Jung um, I've had a long-held interest in Jung and he seems to go through different kind of phases in the popular zeitgeist and I'd say until quite recently until the last few years he's often been kind of dismissed as kind of hippy dippy kind of you know, a, a little, a little bit silly in some way, uh, but I've noticed, particularly with writers I've interviewed over the last few years, Jung seems to be coming back as a a touch point for understanding, uh, particularly how writers and artists from previous generations have engaged with the world and the unconscious. Yeah, I mean, D um, Jung's Red Book. You know, this book in which yeah, he called yeah. it his dreams or his anal 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 analyses of his dreams, but also painted himself. I never really knew about Ju uh, Jung's, keep conflating the two, Jung's um, artistic expression. Mm -hmm. And those, the, the Red Book is just like, it's like an illuminated manuscript, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Or it, it? And it's almost Tolkien-esque as well, mm -hmm. because it goes into these strange images which are allegorical uh, 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 and Freudian because also there's, you know, Jung's roots are with his work with Freud. Um, but yeah, I think those have a much more modern way of looking at, at a world which is very dysfunctional in its relationship mm -hmm. with nature and the whole notion of dominion over nature, you know, this Christian inheritance. And then of course the enlightenment inheritance, the mm -hmm. way of looking at nature, which is very categorical, literally making categories of nature, of, of naming. That's what's really interesting about Jura. And that's why I think he allies with Jung. Jura's not interested in making categories about, mm -hmm. uh, about animals. He, 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 he's interested in them for their own sake. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't categorize, although he does create categorical images of humans, oddly mm -hmm. enough. Um, he doesn't do that to animals. Is really interesting. Mm. Um, so yeah, that link with with Jung I found really really strong, uh, and um, and then of course in my book links too with Thomas Mann who 
has another relationship with yes. Jung. He doesn't, he doesn't like Jung, you know. No. <laughs> he's, he's living in the same town. I love it. It's like there. It's like this kind of soap opera of like <laughs> huge European, but but they're sort of squabbling over things, and and it's uh, yeah. That's why that's why I love about you know what I the way I try to write Albert and the Whale is that you have all these kind. I've tried, you know, because all my life I've been sort of like, you know, I started out as a biographer and then become sort of slightly stranger. And I realized <laughs> that you don't have to tell people all the boring stuff. Right. Sometimes you just need to, you know, the, sometimes the dates and like um, citing quotations and things, just tell the story, what's interesting about it. And you know, mm -hmm. look at the way Thomas Mann told his stories, you know, and the way that Dura enters Thomas Mann's stories or mm -hmm. later on Marianne Moore, the American poet. Um, so I love the way that these people become characters in their own stories and they're almost projecting themselves. You know, I, through me, Jura was allowed to project himself, <laughs> so slightly the arrogance, but he was allowed to project himself into man, into Marion Moore, into Andy Warhol, mm -hmm. because he has now another context. We now have Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol's on his grave are the praying hands of Jura uh, mm -hmm. engraved on Jura's on Andy Warhol's grave, which is tw filmed 24-7. You know, you can watch Andy Warhol's grave. I mean, this Jura would have done that with his grave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would have done that <laughs> if he could. He would totally have done it. Jura's disciples dug him out three days after he'd been buried to take plaster casts of his very Warholian thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole notion of the, the reliquy power of an artist, which is almost um homeopathic um almost like the king's evil you know this notion that you could touch the monarch's robe and be cured of some mm -hmm. you know, there's this power of art and because i was writing this and finishing it during the the pandemic i was really i wasn't putting those things in there deliberately but i was thinking about it and i was thinking about the power of art that and because i was prevented one of my last trips was to Paris. I was staying with you at Shakespeare and Company, and uh, I'm not going to ruin the book because the last, that's the last <laughs> thing, but um, was you know, and of course that had been we'd all been we we art had been taken away from us. The physically mm -hmm. physical interaction with art, except with literature, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, going to see pictures, going to see places, um, and I really you know, so I was it was very strange timing for me because the book involved a lot of travel, European travel, and. Um, you know, to Munich, to Vienna, to Nuremberg, to Paris, to Amsterdam, to Madrid, um, to see the, the physical remains of Jura, who, like mm -hmm. St. Cuthbert's relics, which were spread out over England and, and Wales and Scotland, so Jura's relics, his mm -hmm. physical relics, his, his genetic relics, you know, um, his spit and hair are in those paintings, you know, mm -hmm. His hand is in the, the printing of the engravings. Um, so go and, to go and see his woodblocks, for instance, or to go and see a lock of his hair. Yeah. In, in, in Vienna, you know. Um, yeah. It's, um, I was, I was going to talk about this a bit later, but you've just made me, um, you've just made reference to it. So I'll, I'll ask you about it now is um, one thing, one thing I noted down while, while rereading Albert a few days ago um, is, uh, and I have it just in front of me, is Philip's books as unreligious intellectual pilgrimages. Um, <laughs> and what you were just describing there seemed to feed into that perfectly. Um, and that idea of like, what we got in this book is all of these artists, all of these writers, poets, 
uh, people mediated through you. Um, so I wonder, could you reflect a little bit on the kind of the process and, and the effect it has on you? Is, 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 is it as a sort of description of a pilgrimage? Does that feel quite, uh, quite yeah. accurate to you? No, I think it is. This morning I went to the 40-foot drop in Dublin, mm -hmm. obviously famous, the opening scene of Ulysses. Yeah, yeah. And I was sitting in the station, and the station that I was sitting in, I, I made a note of it this morning, thinking, does it matter But I'm sitting in a station through which passed Oscar Wilde, W.B. Yeats, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, and Brendan Behan? Well, yes, it does. <laughs> it does, because they, in our lives, the interest of the narrative tied with the fact that their narratives, I mean, these personal narratives are really interesting people who have interpreted the world in all multifarious ways. Um, uh, that, that lingers mm -hmm. uh, because their art lingers, you know, and it lingers in Dublin because all of those people wrote about Irishness or Dublin or whatever, but there are mm -hmm. things which came from this place. So they were born of this place, they were birthed by this place. Um, to go to Europe uh, and to go to Jura's house and to knock on the door on his birthday, I knocked on the door of his birthday and they opened the door and I said, it's his birthday. And I thought they were gonna, <laughs> let, I thought they were gonna let me in for free. <laughs> they didn't, I had to pay my money and put the audio guide on and troop round like a cow with this thing hanging around my neck, which I took off and ran up to the top of the building because at the top of the building, I knew was this astrological stroke astronomical observatory. And I really almost sincerely expected to go up there and see him with his long curly hair peering out at his, uh, his telescope at Uranus or something. Um, but of course the irony is his house was like 90% of Nuremberg had to be rebuilt after the, Blitzkrieg um, and you know even in the graveyard of Nuremberg where he's buried his bones are no longer there mm. so the absence but it is like Theseus's ship you know those people are dead those people in Pierce Station this morning I mean that all those people are dead Beckett Joyce Wilde they're mm. all dead um, but they're alive in in their work um, uh, uh, and their spirit and in their guidance you know you and i i know this for a fact have been you know our lives have been drawn from from those writers mm -hmm. we, you know they without them our lives would be very poor yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and and um uh, it's like shakespeare and company it's not the same shop mm -hmm. it's not run by the same people not even the same well there are sometimes they are the same books in there but <laughs> it's um you know, and when I slept in Shakespeare and Company, I knew Anne Ginsberg and William Burroughs had slept there. Probably not in the same bed, but I don't know. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it's humans. We create mm. our new myths, don't we? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We really make our myths. And those are, those are rich things that are not to be disavowed. Mm -hmm. And I think also the sort of our, our personal myths as well. So let's say I was to write a book about Jura, it would be the 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 lines I would trace would be my personal lines and my personal sort of journey and my personal pilgrimage. But one thing I think is uh, kind of magical about this, let's say, this kind of literature is that we could kind of accompany somebody else 
on the journey. We can see the kind of connections and we can, and, and maybe these are connections which will resonate fully with us. Maybe they're ones which will feel, okay, that's very personal to, to Philip, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's something which is uh, one of the, the very special things that the literature does actually, is to give us kind of access to, to the mind of another person and the sort of the the capacity to 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 empathize on a very a very deep level absolutely and i do, i see i really try, especially in the second half of the book where i go out and actually try and find jira himself mm -hmm. is i i i want to be the, the the reader be standing with me i'm not delivering a lecture to this person mm -hmm. you know i i'm not mediating for this person between the art and, I am bearing witness, I'm describing it. I am, I really feel this, I really want to feel as though I'm inviting in someone to come and stand next to me. Like when I was in Milan and I saw this wonderful Jura exhibition there and they had this beautiful pristine print of the Melancholia engraving and the, uh, I was just wrapped because you know, it's just, it's alchemical, this piece of art and the, the woman who was, you know, the 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 the, the uh, attendant in the in the gallery, I sort of she was walking past. I said, "Look at this! Is that amazing?" And I could see her looking at me, and she says, "Is this the is this the great day I can press the red buzzer and call security?" <laughs> you know, because the nutter is in the building. You know, because I just wanted to tell a human being. I wanted a human a human being to say, "Look, yeah, that's incredible." You know, mm -hmm. wow, it's. Because art is a time machine, like Timothy Morton, the great eco-philosopher, said mm -hmm. all art is from the future. Art is a time machine. The yeah. thing that you wanted to do when you were a kid, tra traveling time, and you know, everything about kids is about traveling in time and space, and you either want to be somewhere else, or you want to be someone else, um, or this, art allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. It allows you to do that, it allows you to be with Jura in that point, you know, what he he bears witness to and he and i think that's as we, as we were saying earlier he draws you in mm. he's not exclusive some art is exclusive yeah it's like i was talking to a friend of mine neil tennant it's mm. a, a singer and um we were talking about a book cover and he said that book cover says this is not for you uh -huh. this is not for you that book cover says come in Right. And it's a, that really was an interesting thing mm -hmm. to me because, um, I, you know, it's what draws you in, you know, and the images that Jura created of himself, the icons that he drew of himself, you know, these amazing three mm -hmm. self portraits which move from his grungy, sort of tousled head teenager with his earbuds tangled <laughs> in his red hair and a jellyfish shaped hat on his head to this absolute sophisticate who'd been to Venice and had mm -hmm. the secret of perspective and was dressed by Versace, to the last image of him as God. Mm -hmm. He paints himself as God mm -hmm. and then puts this uh, uh, monogram, A-D, the D in the A, Anno Domini, mm -hmm. after Dura. <laughs> uh, you know, it's his apotheosis. And such is the magnificence of him. You don't... It's incredibly vain and narcissistic, but it, it transcends that. Mm -hmm. And because you can feel what he's doing, and you know, you you know, at a, you know, uh, there are points in your life where you do feel godlike. And and I guess that connects also to that idea of the 
the personal mythology as well that we yeah, were talking yeah, about yeah. like sort of that uh, through his through his artwork and through his representation of the world and himself in it mm. it's in, in the same way or in, at least in a related way to uh the way that you spin your personal mythology in yeah. in your books he was perhaps doing it through his his self-portraits i i want to talk about you said about use the word um you talk about his art and you said that it's not um exclusive um and you also write about melancholia one um, that the only thing that critics agree on about it is that it's the most analyzed object in the history of art do, do you think in a way it's kind of the fact that it's so hard to, to interpret and to analyze is one of the things that prevents it from being exclusive in a way because whatever you bring to the picture is equally valid as even the most kind of educated art historian exactly so because when it is that cryptic no one can come in and say well absolutely no 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 sonny that's the wrong thing you know mm -hmm. they can't say that especially I mean, this is the great thing this is why i loved writing about someone who's been dead for 500 years there's <laughs> lots of things i could say about them that someone can't really turn around and say well they ever have there's lots of suppositions and theories and hypotheses mm -hmm. and apprehensions and intuitions. Um, and all of those very interesting. And it's much more interesting to throw those things up in the air and consider them. Uh, the artist, I think the art, art works best when it's not didactic, when it's mm -hmm. not saying, this is this, this is what you should think about this, this is how you should look at this. Um, it's much more interesting to be inclusive as i say mm. uh, 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 and to draw things in and um but it's like when you're a teenager and again this shows my age and i'm afraid your age as well <laughs> when you're young when we were young we used to let album covers or cd covers yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. and we just look for the clues you know mm -hmm. your favorite band the topography what someone's wearing what's that credit for you know why is it thanks to that person you'd go mm -hmm. and try because you didn't have the internet then to look yeah, up who yeah, that yeah. person was but all of those little kids, oh my God, this is this other world that I could be part of. And I am part of it because I'm holding this piece of artwork, which is an expression of the artist whose art I'm listening to. If Dura had been an artist now, that would have been so interesting to him. That is exactly the sort of thing that he would have loved. That really intense, you know, if he had, could have a soundtrack to his work, you know, mm -hmm. or animate it. I think Dura's... The modern jurors now are working in video games, you know, um, uh, that that's, you know, and jurors own, you know, his uh, images of the apocalypse are straight into a video game, straight. Right. They, they sort of jump from TV and mm -hmm. they go straight to video game, you know, so there is that sense of his, his, he looked forward to this golden age of art and actually he sort of predicted it. And, and also kind of like, uh, unlike a lot of the the, the great masters, what one of the things like video games or like Andy Warhol you mentioned earlier, one of the things that really set Jura apart is the, I guess, the accessibility of his art. Because he was a printmaker, there wasn't just one canvas hanging in a church or in a palace or something like that. These these works were essentially reproducible. It was the first kind of uh, mass uh, mass market art in a way. As the critic Laura Cummings, great. Uh, critic said he was the first international artist because mm -hmm. he could be everywhere yeah he could be in london he could be in oslo he could be in Colombia for god's sake you know, by the end of the 16th century his juror had re his rhinoceros reached Col a colombian villa mm -hmm. you know um the printing that's the key printing is more important than the internet 
-hmm. It changes everything, everything, everything comes from that. And to print images so that people who are not merchant princes, who are not emperors, who are not wealthy, privileged people, but ordinary, and of course the new middle class that is developing at this point, can have these images, they can put them up, and they can, they have, there are instructions to color them in, like yeah, yeah, modern yeah. coloring in books, you know. <laughs> um, there were franchises, Joe had franchises of these works, which would be, he was sending out the work, manufactured by a studio, not necessarily by his own hand, the way that Warhol's images weren't mm -hmm. created by his own hand, and they're going out there, but they are bits of Jura, you, and it's like the relic, it's like in Nuremberg were the holy relics of the ancient Roman Empire, and the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, um, and there were things called touch relics, where pieces of paper were touched to the Holy Lance. So these were actually relics of, sorry, the relics of Christ's crucifixion, touched the Holy Lance that had pierced Christ's side, and you had that piece of paper, and that paper was imbued with the power of that relic. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with Jura's paintings, his drawings, his engravings. They were going out there, so people had art. They had art in their way and they could paste them up on their wardrobes and indoors like modern pinups, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is in the context, of course, that one 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 um thing that you say in the book, which is kind of mind-blowing, is that somebody in Jura's time would see fewer man-made images than somebody in our time would see in a minute. Yeah. Um, and so this this is this is not just um this is not just a case of sort of the the beauty of his work, but just the the, the, the fact that they are seeing these images and maybe a sort of a quantity of images that is likely to be quite overwhelming to the, the, the 15th century um, mindset. Well, exactly, because the, his first woodcuts and his big first number one hit, as it were, were the Prince of the Apocalypse, which he created yeah. in 1498 in advance of the turning of the, of the centuries. Crucial point in it, turning mm -hmm. any century is always a worrisome time. The fantasy secular, as we know, is always whether it's the millennium bug or the, <laughs> or the, the you know, the, the, the decadence of the 1890s. Um, the, the collective cultural hysteria that builds up around that. I mean, in Europe at this time, people were building towers to avoid the flood that was about to come mm -hmm. in 1500. And what does Jura do? He, he creates that apocalypse. He creates images of the book of revelations. These images, they, even now, they scare you because mm. they show angels fighting dragons above like suburban towns. Uh -huh. And they are three-dimensional angels. They're not like, they're not like, um, uh, you know, Renaissance um, sort of murals and sort of a sense of flatness or remoteness. They're there. Mm -hmm. They're there, and these devils have worms coming out of their eyes, and it's, they are, they're a CGI trailer <laughs> for Armageddon, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding roughshod off over the populace, you know, spreading death and disaster and famine and plague. Mm -hmm. They're so believable. They believe, if, they're, if they have that effect now, what the hell would they have done in 1498? No one, no one could own images before that, really. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, my God, <laughs> you know, I mean, just, and they are, and they're very beautiful as well as being very terrible. There is a terrible beauty. They are very, they are evocative of W.B. Yeats in a way, you know, they have that, that, that and, and so, and they are very, and 
that like Orby Beardsley again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and Beardsley was influenced by Dura. Um, there's this sense of um, imagining the unimaginable, um, the unholiness, because he's depicting seasons seems the Bible, but he's actually depend, depicting evil mm. and, and pestilence, all these things, which are you almost conjuring those things up? You know, that, I'm, that's, what, that's what Martin Luther was afraid, that you would be conjuring these things, you would be releasing devils and mm. demons. Jura didn't believe that. I mean, Jura didn't believe that. He, 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 was, he was looking to the future. I mean, he yeah, had a much yeah. more rational response. He's more rational in many ways than Luther in some ways, you know. Um, but do yeah. You, do you think this, um, these visions of the apocalypse, um, because there's also that, um, that image, which is extraordinarily evocative of the, the nuclear mushroom cloud. Uh, do, do you think it's that in a way which contributes to the fact that people keep coming back to Jura? Because you said, you know, the, the fantasy echo idea, uh, or not even fantasy echo, like someone like Thomas Mann, who was living through essentially you know, the, the, the 20s and 30s and watching the society he'd, he'd grown up in be, be dismantled and fall yeah. apart and collapse into to Nazism. Mm. Do you think that it's the, this sense of an ending in a way that keeps Jura relevant to uh to successive generations of, of artists and writers absolutely there's a great um series of essays by frank commode called the sense of an ending and in that he looks at the uh, various apocalypses that humans have uh, have, have, have addressed in in, in modern times basically mm-hmm. in in the last thousand years well 500 years really and how they always are disconfirmed. Mm-hmm. But there's something that uh, we derive our sense of self-worth and uh, a lot of our culture from the fact that, um, that we do survive these things. And, and that, um, but they also have a huge artistic power. Mm-hmm. They create a lot of really great art. Uh, partly because, you know, being happy and content doesn't really produce a lot of good art, right. <laughs> you know. I mean, Sylvia Plath. I mean, if she'd lived as a happy housewife in Baltimore or somewhere, you know, rather than you know her tumultuous mm-hmm. life, it just wouldn't have produced the genius that she produced, you know. Um, so there's there is that as well. Um, so, but you know, the human beings always um, it reassures us of our sometimes of our specialness mm-hmm. as a species, which is nowadays I find difficult because this sense of the hierarchy of the natural world, which we now really is a, know as a, as a canard really, but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, but yeah, so, so the, 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 the fact that human culture, that's why I really felt right through the p- pandemic. And I was really feeling this as I was editing the book, writing and finishing mm-hmm. the book and editing it and thinking, I, you know, art is so bloody important. Uh-huh. And what really, one of the real things that was driving my book, and as you know this personally, Adam, is uh, because you feel it too, is what the the harm that um, has been created by the, the mm. EU referendum, the, the mm. really visceral harm, uh, and the harm that is inflicted on people who are going to come after us, and already on my nieces and nephews specifically, I think. But, you know, I've just... Yeah. So I was really thinking, because no one made the case here in the UK anyway, well, I'm not in the UK, I've been in Ireland, uh, or another <laughs> story there, but um, um, was no one made the case for art. Right. 
for culture. They never mm. do. And what and what is Britain's most prestigious, most effective, most if you want to bring it down to economic terms, most lucrative export? It is culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Culture. And also, as um, Armando Iannucci pointed out when I interviewed him a few weeks ago, is that that was what sustained us during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. You know, whether, whether it be books, whether it be Netflix, whether it be, you know, magazines, poetry, whatever, it, it, it was that that stopped us all over the world from going completely mad. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was so, you know, I, I curated this reading, digital reading of the Ancient Mariner, the Rhyme of the mm. Ancient Mariner, which again, purely by chance, we've been working on it for three years. It, it happened to be released during the pandemic. And just, and it was just symptomatic of everyone, this thirst for poetry that was so yeah. encouraging. Oh my God, you know, <laughs> just thinking, oh dear, you know, it's just like, for me, that's art's revenge <laughs> is, is that, Okay, so you're gonna, you know, we're gonna go through this worst period, having through a self-inflicted disaster, we go into a another self-inflicted disaster, which is zoonotic, <laughs> probably, you know. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that I think there was a sense of defiance. We'll we'll read poetry. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, there's not much we can do. We're locked in our houses. You know, I just came back from Spain where the book was released, was published last last week, and um you know, these you know, people in Madrid, you know, this really made me think of Shakespeare and Company. It was a great bookshop in Madrid. Madrid, during the lockdown, the severe lockdown, when people mm -hmm. weren't allowed to leave their flats, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people without gardens, without balconies. I mean, it was just, I was speaking to people, you know, just they were. This bookshop in, in, in Madrid, this woman running this bookshop, she somehow managed to start up this service where she delivered books mm -hmm. by bicycle around the city, the deserted dystopian city, you know, mm -hmm. delivering books. Oh God, I love that. I mean, someone's going to make a movie about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, it's like, you know, when Shakespeare and company were going through troubled times during the pandemic and everyone was getting very worried. I mean, I think the, the response to that on social media and, and just people were just, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not going to see that go down. I yeah. just, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Because that's it, an expression of our spirit. It's incredibly heartening. And I think maybe that sort of, the fact that people turned to art in a way shows that sort of, this is ultimately what we do prioritise, you know, given given the, the the space and the time to 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 spend our lives how we wish to spend them exactly. it is in books it is in poetry it is in films yeah. you know it's that kind of it's, it's in that kind of that enrichment of the um, of the spirit that um that art uh, that art does because i think and this is just coming back to that idea of personal mythology which i think um i'd like to to, to, to finish this conversation on is that I think all of that feeds into the way that we understand our lives and the way that we tell our stories and the way that we can deal with and process certain things that happen to us. And one of the things in Albert and the Whale where that's very pronounced is with this um, medical condition you find yourself uh, with mm. uh, Dupitrans or Dupitrens uh, contracture. Yeah. Um, and what perhaps you could just explain to our listeners a little bit what this is and, a, mm. and just give us an insight for people who haven't read the book into how 
in, in a sense, you were able to incorporate that into your personal mythology and, and, and deal with the, the, the condition in that way. Yeah, because I think in the, when you're writing anything, because it's such an internal sedentary process, it makes you think about your physical self. It's one of the reasons why I swim a lot because mm -hmm. that's the kind of physical antidote to what we do. We all have different ways of dealing with the way you and I spend most of our time doing this sort of thing, being <laughs> on a screen or, you know, so many people are like that. Um, is you do think about your physical self, what you do with your physical self, because increasingly because of that relationship to technology, it, 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 it disables, I use that word advisedly, it disables your body, mm -hmm. you know, because your body is no longer really that useful, mm -hmm. apart from your thumbs and your brain, uh -huh. you know, uh, or your fingers. And, um, and my fingers were going wonky. And my fingers are going, is a condition, Dupuytron's contracture is named after Baron Guillaume Dupuytron. I, I don't mm -hmm. know whether I pronounce it right, but, and it was in the Rue de la du, Rue de Dupuytron, mm -hmm. uh, um, where Shakespeare and company, of course, first yeah. up and um, so powerful for me coming to um, <laughs> the Shakespeare and company when I was writing, because it's the, the funny thing is, is the book, I was starting to write it when I had my first visit to, um, uh, to as, as anyone will see, because there's, there's a scene from that um, a visit to the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. And then I, as I was finishing it, I came back to say, so it's really interesting, it's kind of both book ended by Paris and there's another aspect of that which I won't say here because it will spoil the book but um and so that sense of um my dysfunction is quite ironic you know because it's like my hands I really need my hands and these hands my hands were starting to be Beckett had the same thing mm -hmm. it, 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 it turns your hands into claws it, you know my finger was could not bend it was it was touching the palm of my hand and um it's actually something which is traced back to northern genes especially from uh, viking it's, mm. it's it's called the viking disease because we we think it was spread by vikings throughout the country and of course the vikings ended up in hungary so and there's an artist that we're talking about who had hungarian uh, uh, ancestry and uh, so but i had my my hand was so bad it had to be operated on and so i was operated on this three-hour operation where i was laid out um, and i decided to have just local anesthetic mm -hmm. so it was a block they block up the arms nerve so it was exactly like the rembrandt painting of of um the dr Torp's anatomy lesson which is a very jura-esque yeah, yeah yeah we know that rembrandt was influenced by jura uh, and it's a very jura-esque thing and so halfway through this operation i'm so i'm come talking to the surgeon now. the three surgeons three hand surgeons apparently hand surgery hand surgery is more difficult than brain surgery Mm -hmm. apparently so it was really long operation with the full cast of characters in the operating theater so it is a performance and you are at the heart of this performance so you're being operated upon i felt like my subject i felt like jura because i knew that jura also had this condition mm -hmm. and so i saw my hand being opened up i mean literally my hand was opened up it was unfolded in front of me like a flower Mm -hmm. And they've taken bits out of it. I was thinking, I can't spare those bits. <laughs> like Tony Hancock said, I can't spare that much blood. Was, you know, blood transfusion, um, blood donation. But, um, and, um, and I said to the surgeon, because surgeons are very, they're very interesting people because they're very disassociated what they do. They are completely mm -hmm. in what they're doing, but they must disassociate from the patient as a human being in a way, because right. they, you know, they, they can't be, 
they can't be thinking in that way. They have to be thinking about it as a technical thing. Mm. And uh, and I said to the head surgeon, I said, do you know the anatomy of Dr. Tulk by, by Rembrandt? <laughs> we don't often dis- discuss culture in the, in, in the operating theatre, you know, but it was really funny and it, it did make me, so it, I felt that, you know, and because jurors, when you see jurors' portraits of himself, the focus is not even on the eyes almost, it's on the hands, because mm-hmm. they are the hands of God. You know, and that's they are the tools that make his art. And I was thinking, you know, am I about to lose my tool? You know, uh, uh, the way to uh, that I write, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, I wasn't going to, but it was just that physical sense of being dissected. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. this is just what I'm doing to Jura, you know, sort of like taking them <laughs> apart uh, and trying to diagnose him. But um, but ultimately, you know, uh, asking questions which can't be answered. His own questions, Jura questions, the question that he asks himself all the time, all the time, what is beauty? Mm-hmm. His answer always was, I don't know. Mm. That sounds like a perfect place for us to finish. Philip, I could go on talking with you for hours about this. I hope we'll get the chance to do it in person in Paris soon. Um, of course, Albert and the Whale is available from uh, Shakespeare and Company, from our online store as well, or from neighbourhood independent bookstores, wherever people uh, may be based. Uh, all that remains for me to say is, Philip Hoare, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been totally my pleasure. Thanks very much. And, and thank you to Shakespeare and Company, who who bookended this book as well. Thank you. It's our (laughs) honour. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading, and thanks again for listening.